And uh, as we turn in our Bibles, please do not turn to 2 Corinthians this morning, <clears throat> but to 1 Corinthians, if you would, to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me say that rightly. You know, this morning, uh, I'm going to do a message on conversion. I believe like you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God still saves. Some of us believe that, so maybe I'll preach on that this morning. God still saves. Let me say this, there it is, exclamation point, that would have got you, yeah. We see this message throughout the Bible. I know this is nothing new to you. If you've been here for a little bit, I, I say these things. I feel like I say them often, but you know, we see sin enter, right? In the early chapters of Genesis, we see God's answer in Genesis 3.15 uh, of, of Christ coming, right? The covenant of grace. We see the fulfillment of the covenant in the gospel when Jesus says, this is the covenant in my blood. Um, Jesus spoke of conversion. He spoke of salvation, in our scripture reading, we see David speaking of conversion. I will, I will teach sinners your way that they might be converted. We'll see in this passage of Paul, Paul will talk about conversion, right? He'll talk about salvation and uh, how it is necessary, right? And we'll see it throughout from the beginning to the end. It is about uh, the separation of us from God because of sin, and it's the reestablishment of us with God through an atoning sacrifice, right? And that specifically of Jesus Christ. And we see this, and it's, it's not uh, unique to us, especially if you've been here, if you're familiar with uh, the writings of Scripture and the things that are happening, you know that it is about salvation. It's about a central figure. It's about Jesus. We know also that our world uh, is not, um, I would just say the world disagrees, right? Our culture is against that. <clears throat> it becomes an apologetic. We know there are two spiritual families on the planet. There are those uh, all those, as David said, born into sin, were born into Adam, as Paul says it. And uh, there are those by the Spirit of God, through the work of, re- of regeneration, are, are adopted. The spirit of adoption come into Christ's family. There's only two spiritual families. You know, death, right? Spiritual death, spiritual life. Dark light, right? We see that, and there's no gray area in Scripture. So we know that, and the world will deny those things. <clears throat> So we want to make sure that our message is that going forward. Not only do we believe and profess it, it has profound implications. Conversion changes relationships. It changes husbands. It changes wives. It changes children, right? Not just eternally, but it changes them in the, in the everyday. Right? We believe that there is a spirit now, right? Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are filled with the third person of the Trinity, right? And now we are pursuing holiness, and there is a change in that person's life. There was a story of a converted cannibal who was on uh, South Sea Island one day, and he had come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he was sitting there reading. And there was an anthropologist who was doing some studying of the, the tribes and things, and he came to this young man and, and asked him, what are you doing? The man responded and said, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. And kind of a little bit of a, an arrogance, the anthropologist responded to this young man. He says, don't you know that modern man has rejected that book? Right? We're, we're above that. We're smarter. The cannibal responded, and he looked at the gentleman, and he said, sir, if it weren't for this book, you would be in that pot. 
So there's some practical application of salvation, right? But it's a change in life. And so I want to read these passages. We'll be in 1 Corinthians. I just want to go through uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 this morning. And then I'll explain why, we're, why, why we are here. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says these words, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified, specifically in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let me offer a brief prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can open your word today, that we can, Lord, uh, hear your word and hear it preached and be challenged by it. Um, Father, I ask, as we look to this, as we look to the need, Lord, of, of conversion, of salvation, as we look to the, the purpose of Christ's coming, um, Lord, let us not be offended, but let us realize how important this message is, the message of the cross. So, Father, I pray for us this morning, you would turn our attention to you, you would teach us from your word, you would instruct us for your glory. And, Father, get me out of the way that every soul here would receive what you have for them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is a theme throughout Scripture, right? So we see it from the beginning all the way to the end. Um, in Acts 17, when Paul is engaging in Mars Hill and he's, he's giving his sermon, I'm just going to share a few verses. This is, I just put the reference in, your, in the intro of your outline. Acts 17, 30, 31, Paul is preaching, and he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, he's speaking of Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul is very straight to the point. He's saying here, and he writes it in an imperative mood, that it is a command. God is commanding that all men should repent. That is the word for conversion, right? We see of salvation. You need to repent. There's an acknowledgement of sin. But this is the heartbeat of God, right? We see it in the passage. So why are we taking a break from 2 Corinthians to look at this? Uh, well, <clears throat> there has been a bill passed in Canada a few weeks ago. Uh, the bill is, maybe some of you have heard about it, the bill has been, uh, it's titled C4. It has gone through the parliament in Canada, it has, it has passed with a 100% vote. Um, and the bill itself makes it a crime to convert anyone from the sin of homosexuality or transgenderism. Right? It, it, it goes directly against what Christianity, the heart of the Bible, it denies who God is as a created order. And this, 
stands out because Christianity, right? Why is this the case? Why is this going on? And um, Well, Christianity is the greatest agitator to sinners, isn't it? Darkness uh, does not want the light. Light has come into the world, and darkness does not want it. Christ has come, and they have tried to extinguish him by killing him. So the bill went into effect January 8th. Uh, It's now a felony in Canada if uh, any pastor preaches against the LBGTQ lifestyle or transgenderism um, with a five-year prison sentence. Now, this morning, I may say this a few times, the goal of this message is not to point out certain sins, right? The bill is, is focused on one area, but we realize that when bills come like this, right, they're, they're getting at the heart of a creator. They're denying the creator. They're uh, denying a sin, and, and by necessity, they're denying Christ and any hope of salvation. So this is why it's, it's serious, but it comes as a felony now in Canada, um, for those struggling, right, with this, and those in this lifestyle who believe this. So why are we preaching? Again, I asked that question this, uh, this morning. Well, there was a pastor, maybe you heard about him a few times, uh, a little while, maybe last year, two years ago, named James Coates. He was uh, put into prison for opening his church and preaching the gospel. He was in Canada. Uh, of course, they had no grounds for that time to do that. Eventually, he came out. He is a graduate from Master Seminary, and so he was connected with John MacArthur. And so today, uh, so you're aware, there are many pastors in Canada who are preaching a message on conversion, on the gospel, right? That there, there is sin in the world. It's manifested in heterosexual sins as well as homosexual sins. And there is an answer to all our sin problem, and his name is Jesus. And they are preaching this message today, and they had asked coming up on January 16th, if John MacArthur would be a part of that. Well, I'll tell you today, that without hesitation, he said absolutely. Not only did he say he, today he is preaching on conversion and God's uh, biblical understanding of, of sexuality and what that means, but he has asked many other pastors in America to stand with him. He had sent out, said many of you had sent this to me, and, uh, and uh, he had sent out a... a um, there's a word. I know there's a word for it, but it's not coming to me. But to sign, right? Uh, the, not a pledge, but a thank you. Thank you. You're all listening. That's great. <laughs> a petition. There's the word. And you're just going through that. You would stand for what the Bible teaches without hesitation, right? Of course, right? We've, just so you know, your pastor has signed that. And our church is represented among the 3,000 plus other pastors who had said this Sunday, preach a message of conversion. It does matter. Right, as we read in, in, uh, in Psalm 51, we see David says, all our sin is against God. The heart is not to just pick out this peculiar sin, but it is to bring attention to right, what is God's created order. How did God establish the family? How did he do this? Well, he did it in Genesis chapter 1. Right, he established the family. He created them male and female. So MacArthur has sent the word out. We want to declare God's truth. We want to uh, focus on, right, the, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've said this many times to a few of you. We're, we're here not for ourselves. We're here for souls, right? The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Christ's coming is for this singular moment that there can be conversion. Uh, even David is saying it, right, in his psalm, I will teach transgressors that sinners 
might be converted. And whenever we come to a place in our culture where we start saying, well, you know what, there's another standard for which I live my life, and we reject objective truth, well, we can substitute anything in that moment for whatever we want. So if the church says, you know what, hey, we're not going to be a part of that. We're just going to keep to ourselves in this little corner of, of, you know, Atwater, USA. Well, then if these things continue to happen, do you realize that if we stop preaching that all sin is against the holy God and his answer, his provision for that is in Christ alone. If we don't preach these things, well, justification by faith alone now is gone, right? Adoption by the Holy Spirit is gone. The Holy Spirit works according to Scripture. If we're not going to teach those things, the Holy Spirit is not active. Now, God can do what He wants to do, but He has chosen to do it this way. Sanctification in Christ is gone. The power of the gospel is taken away. The truth about sin is diminished. All hope, right, in life, really, in eternal life, is lost. A heavenly eternal life. And, of course, sin compounds itself, right? It grows. So this becomes very important to us. You're saying, hey, Pastor, we live in America, not in Canada. Right? Well, if this passed unanimously in Canada, you have to realize that it's coming here. And I'm sure there's legislation floating around already. You know, to reference uh, other things. We're going to say, you know what? We know what is, what is right morality and what is wrong morality. We're going to tell you outside of God's word. Now, how can I say this with confidence? Well, I'm going to read a portion of the bill for you. Listen to these words. Whereas, and they call this conversion therapy. That's what they're rejecting. Hence, this is Conversion Sunday. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it. Right? So if I tell you you're in sin and you need to be converted, I am doing you harm. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, It is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. You realize that if you're here this morning and you are a male or a female created in God's image, Genesis 1.27, God created the man, uh, created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this bill is saying if you are here this morning and you are a male and or female and your identity is in Christ and you affirm that I am made as a male and I affirm, right, that I am a man or I'm a female and as a, as a woman, right, they are saying that that is inferior, right? That, that whole idea is a myth. That's the language. And if you're going to say that uh, God has created, right, and, and that heterosexuality, that God has designed sex for the context of marriage between one man and one woman, well, that is a myth, and it does harm to those who would think otherwise. So we have a social construct, a worldview that is completely uh, contrary to Christianity. It is anti-Christ. 
See, when people desire God's design, right? Or excuse me, um, prefer God's design, there it is, over, over societies, you become criminalized. This is now, I want you to realize that, that we are living, we are, we are seeing it demonstrated in, in legislation profoundly, Romans chapter 1. We are seeing that what is right is now wrong, what is wrong is now right, what is good is bad, what is true is false, and God is replaced with man. This is coming, right? And it's not just enough, just so you know, I'm like, well, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, and then pastor can go to jail all he wants, right? It's just so you're thinking that. Yeah, I might go to jail for five years, but if you promote it in any way and support this in any way, you're also going to be charged with a felony that you only serve one year in prison. But here's the point. This is, I know it's a lengthy introduction, but here's the point. The gospel produces conversion. Paul is fully convinced, right? God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. Jesus has told us you must be born again. This is language of conversion, right? In the passage we just read, here it is. No one righteous get into heaven. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about just these. You're saying that's a little harsh. No, these are sins, and we'll get through that as this passage uh, dictates. But it covers everything. All sin is against God, and for us to receive salvation, all our sin, all our sin, not some of our sin, must be dealt with. This is why Christ is necessary. See, the gospel produces conversion, and conversion demands conflict, conflict with sin, conflict with worldviews. So if we allow God's standard to change, right, then ultimately we're saying there is no hope. For all of us are in need. And so what's interesting of the bill is they are claiming morality by denying morality. They're denying Christians who say, here's what God's word says about morality. They're going to say, no, this is the right direction forward. They don't tell us. What are they referencing? Well, it's self, ultimately. So as we get into this passage, I just want you to know, by, by, I know that's a lengthy introduction, but you have to realize that we are in a culture that says sin is okay. We see this you know, coming into the church today. There are many pastors that would imagine this morning who aren't going to touch this. They don't want to say any language regarding this. To which I would respond and say, we're not really loving anyone. What good does it do someone who says, you know what, you can live your way or live your lifestyle outside of God's rules and not repent. What good does that do when their life comes to an end? So we have to have a message of conversion. We have to say, you know what? Just as you need Jesus, I need Jesus. My sin, it may not be your sin, but it separates me from a holy God. So we, this morning, as we look at these things, is to realize that we need to have a heart of compassion for those who are struggling in these areas. It is becoming very common. What needs to happen is the teaching. There are some today who might be even in here going, I'm struggling with this area. You're going to see in this message that God has an, a profound answer and, and help for you. And it may not mean the struggle goes away. But it does mean that we put our life, right, in a line of sanctification following after the Lord. Peter says this, and this is a verse in 1 Peter 3.15, the work of, the famous apologetic verse, you normally cite it in the works of apologetics, but, but he says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he goes on to saying, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 
we, normally we, we have a defense with love and, right, and love and gentleness, but the first part that Peter says is, is sanctify Christ. So what does that mean? He's saying as you, as you live this life, set aside Christ. Set aside your Lord. Sanctify him. Set him aside in your hearts. Does your allegiance lie with Christ? See, that's a decision I cannot make for you. It's a decision each of us must understand as we look at these passages and live in a culture that says, I don't like the way what you're saying here, Pastor. I don't like those words. You have to realize as a follower of Jesus Christ, we must engage our culture with truth. It doesn't mean we beat people down, but we come with a message of salvation. We come with a message of conversion. You must sanctify the Lord Jesus. You must set him apart and say, I will follow. I don't mean to put you in a difficult position. I simply mean be a light in a dark area. Speak for truth. The Lord gives you opportunity. So what does he say in this passage? We've read the passage, 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 9. The first part of verse 9, 9a, I put in your notes, is the declaration for conversion. Paul is all-inclusive here. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, kingdom of God is, he's referencing, right, salvation. He will not go to the kingdom of God. This is a rhetorical question that Paul is expecting a positive answer. Of course, we know no unrighteous, right, will inherit the kingdom of God. An unrighteous person is an unjust person. It's a person who is not saved, a person who has not come to Calvary. And he's saying those who have not repented of their sins are in danger of forfeiting, right, of all of this. Now, Paul is not, I want to make this clear, he's, he's not uh, hounding on those who are struggling in sin, yet desiring to follow the Lord. Right? He is talking about the unjust, those who have not repented of their sins. Those who willingly continue in a sinful lifestyle, whether it be, right, heterosexual sins or homosexual sins. The person cannot be in a lifestyle of sin and profess to be a Christian. A Christian is always going to struggle against sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, a Christian is going to be actively pursuing sanctification, right? A Christian is going to have these things happening in their life. It's a part of the assurance. I struggle with this, but I keep repenting, and I'm going to keep turning, and I'm going to keep moving forward. Paul is not talking about that person. He's talking about those who may seemingly profess Christ, but have no uh, agitation against the sin that is happening in their lives. He's saying those who have no desire, right, to turn from their lifestyle, even if they say, I'm a Christian, he's saying, yeah, you're not a Christian. The unjust do not inherit the kingdom of God. It's important for us to understand that, right? When we come to conversion, is there a desire in you? Are you, are you do you have a love for Jesus Christ? I love how R.C. Sproul would always say that. Do you, do you love Christ perfectly? And every single one of us, if we're honest, would say, no, I don't love him perfectly. And then he would say, do you love Jesus Christ as you should? To which, again, if we're honest, we would know I don't love him as I should. And then he would say, do you have any love at all for Jesus in your life? And the believer would say, I love him. I love him, but I fail him. He would say, the Holy Spirit is at work because there is a love that you have for Christ. 
There's a desire to move forward. Paul is not talking, if that's you today, he is not talking it to you as unjust. I titled this message, right? Uh, let's read the passage. Uh, Such were some of, and I said of you, of us, right? This is, this is our testimony. This is our story. We have been delivered. So he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction, right? You're fighting against sin because all our sin is against the holy God. Just like David who was confessing, Lord, uh, uh, do not take your spirit from me. I, I've sinned against you, but Lord, uh, restore me. Restore, right, that right spirit. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. This is why this is so vitally important because what's on the line here is salvation. Not by works, but by God's grace. We're going to see in this passage all the unjust, all those who are lost in sin. There is an answer to that. And Paul is confident that God's, uh, Jesus' blood that is shed on Calvary is enough. And here's his declaration for conversion. There was a story of a young girl who was, uh, believed on Jesus Christ and the elders were talking to her because she desired to be obedient to God's word and get baptized. And so they're, they're asking her these questions because she was young. They want to make sure that she understood the gospel. And, and so they asked her, have you, have you come to believe, right? What's your testimony? She said, yeah, I have believed. Without hesitation, she responded, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they asked her, do you think, uh, do you think you've changed? Have you seen a change in your life? She says, oh yes, I have changed. Then they ask, do you think you're still a sinner? She said, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Then they ask the last question, then what is the change that has come over you? She said, before I was saved, before I was converted, I ran after sin. And now I'm running from it. That's the Christian life. This is the declaration. This is the only hope. And Paul says, anyone who's unrighteous, those outside of Christ, all those who haven't confessed their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are, are included in the unrighteous. They are the unjust. And Paul's saying rhetorically, do you not know that those who do not repent will not inherit? They will not come into the kingdom. Now, Paul is going to use the kingdom of God like bookends between uh, verse 9 and the end of verse 10, right? He's going to sandwich those two things. You realize, right, they don't come into the kingdom. And you would think that would be enough. We could almost end the sermon there. We say, yes, we get it. But he goes on. And he says, and this is my second point, where I say the necessity of conversion. He says, do not be deceived. It's like he's reiterating, right? He's coming back to this and saying, do not be deceived. Paul, we understood the rhetorical question. The Corinthians, just like us today, can say, yes, we understand. Uh, anyone outside of Jesus Christ, they are unjust. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, do not be deceived. Just so we're clear here. I, I think Paul has some insight into the pressures that you and I feel. In dealing with sins such as this, we have family members, maybe friends, right, who are struggling, who are going through these very things, and we're left to go, what are we to do with this? And of course, we love those who are struggling with this sin. There'll be a temptation for us to say, you know what? Maybe it is okay. Maybe God is love, and he just loves, and that's that. 
So that's not Paul's response. And I understand and I can appreciate the pressure, but here Paul stresses, he comes with us with a command. An imperative verb, right? Christians are commanded. You have to think different than the culture. You have to think rightly about, biblically, about sin, about God's holiness, about morality. See, no one gets into heaven on good behavior. You can't love someone into heaven. You can't, right, just be good. We're all good. We'll all get to heaven. We like that happy feeling. We don't want to deal with the tension of the awkward conversations. Paul says, do not be deceived. There's a tendency today, right, in our culture, just like in any other culture, I'd imagine, to to divorce religion from morality. You know what? You can, you can talk about sin, but don't talk about these sins. These are off the table. And we know in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's demonstrated in every age. We live in a world that is teaching that God and sin, God as creator, the marriage, heterosexuality, it's all a myth. Do you realize this bill denies Right? They are denying their creator. They are denying sin. They are denying as God's answer to our sin problem. Yet they reference nothing outside to say, here's the proof. No, we just know. There's this esoteric knowledge inside of us because we want to indulge in our darkness. Light has come into the world. We don't want it. And we want you to stop talking about it. So the believer is to not... Uh, to not be deceived. We have to differentiate between God's truth and what the world is saying. It is wise for us to grow in wisdom and understanding, to understand that we would have that answer, as Peter says, as we sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ and we engage in ideas and ideologies and philosophies and worldviews to begin to say, here's, here's the answer. Here's where you're, you're missing it. You need to look, think about this for a little bit with love and respect because every person, regardless of their sin or their struggle, is a soul and they they are created in the image of God, so we want to love them and help them, but we don't help them if we don't teach them or tell them about a holy God, about sin, and God's answer to that sin. So God, Paul is saying here, there is a necessity of conversion. There's not a hundred ways that get to heaven. I, I, don't, I don't really care if Oprah Winfrey says that. It's not true. There's only one way, and Jesus says, I'm it. But the world is, is crashing in, right? The world is now being much more bold to these things. The world is, is desiring to change this, to rid ourselves, to get this out of the way. Jared Longshore, in a book called By What Standard, says this, Our culture is presently trying to twist the very fabric of reality. The nature of man and woman is a key place where they are making their painful attempt. He goes on to say that they can do their best to crash against God's created order, but they will find themselves breaking against it. See, the world is saying, right, what they're saying with this bill and others, maybe you've heard it in your own life, you don't need conversion, you don't need God, you're good on your own. Christ died for nothing. 1 John 1, Ten. Let me ask you this question. Does God lie? Let's listen to this verse or these verses. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous 
so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, there's our word, unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Conversion is a necessity. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but yet the unrighteous can be delivered from their sins. God does not lie. There is a day, as Paul says in Acts 17. God has fixed a day in which he will judge. David has told us he will judge in righteousness. He will be blameless when he judges. Why? Because he is pure. His standard is perfection. There is no other way. We're not truly loving anyone if we don't tell them this. So Paul says, look, here's the declaration. Here's the necessity of it. My third point here this morning is uh, the recipient's Just again, just so we're all clear on this. This list is not exhaustive, but listen to what Paul says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, well, there's our our words again, rather, will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a declaration of conversion. There's a necessity for conversion. There is only one way to Jesus. Here's the recipient's. What's amazing about this list is it should give every single one of us in here this morning a profound hope. It doesn't matter the sin that, that those that you know who are lost in, there is a provision for it. Here's the recipients. We see the bookends, right? The unrighteous, here it is. Here's what he's talking about. The first five sins deal with sexual sins. The last five deal with non-sexual sins. The list is not to be exhaustive. You kind of get the idea that maybe Paul is running with the Ten Commandments. Just let me give you ten. But it includes a vast majority of other areas. He goes through it. Let me walk through this. Fornicators. Here is sexual immorality. Some of your Bibles might be translating that. Here's the inclusion of other areas of our lives, right? Just simply uh, immoral activity. And this is going against the created order. Anything that says today that uh, sex is okay outside of marriage, right, is sin. It denies the created order. And then he mentions idolaters. It seems kind of odd that in sexual sins he lists this. Why would he, he list idolatry? Again, let's jump into Corinth. What did Corinth do? Well, they, they had idolatrous worship in Corinth. In which case, they involved prostitution. They would prostitute themselves from other pagan gods. This is what he's talking about. He mentions adulterers, right? Here's the heterosexual sins in all of these. You see them as well. Unfaithful in marriage, right? That's a sin. Effeminate. He's talking about perversion. This word is only used once here in this, and it's right here in this text. And it means exchanging one sexual role for another. You know, so when some say today, well, transgender, it's not specifically mentioned. No, it's right here. This is what he's talking about. See, God, God takes seriously your role. God has bestowed upon you Dignity. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a male, or a female. God has made you in his image. And God didn't mess up on you. God's design for the marriage, right? The marriage in the family is his institution. He realizes that this, right? 
is the design. He, he designed it this way to function this way. Fathers, you have a profound role. Mothers, you have a profound role. Your children need you in a ginormous, huge way. And most importantly, that you would communicate to your children who God is. See, when the family goes, the society goes. And don't think the enemy doesn't understand this. Satan would love, right, break the family. It's what we see in some of these, these movements in our society. What's one of their agenda items? Crush the family. And where do you think that comes from? The evil one. He goes on from this list and he mentions specifically homosexuals. Some of your translations might uh, say sodomy. Right? The, the word is talking about really any male who engages in sexual activities with other men or boys. So you have pedophilia mentioned right here. And sodomy is taken from Genesis chapter 19 when those who lusted after angels, if you're familiar with the story of Lot. So what is he saying? This is sin. It was widespread in Corinth. It was a pattern of their living. This is why Paul goes on here in the next verse to say, such were some of you. So he mentions the sexual sin, just so we're clear. There is God's design, and any any sin, any sexual sin that that goes against God's standard, right, of a one male, one female in marriage, that's where sex is to be. Uh, This is how God designed it. Anything contrary to that is sin. This is what Paul's getting at. He's not hitting at every specific thing, but you see a broad stroke. He doesn't leave heterosexual sins off the table. No, they're equally dealt with here. And then he goes on. He talks about thieves, right? Meaning petty theft, those who covet, those who want more than what they have. He's talking about drunkards, and this contains not just alcohol, but any artificial stimulants. Revilers, those who abuse others with their tongue. He's talking about swindlers, those who, are, who will rip off people, right? Or con artists. This is the list. And what's important for us to understand is here the Bible is identifying unrighteousness. Because Paul began this by saying the unrighteous they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But today, do not be deceived because we live in a world that says, yeah, this isn't sin anymore. See, these are, these are not sins that are unforgivable. Such were some of you. We see God's passion for holiness. And we live in a world that says, forget all of that. But we're not going to make God to be a liar. But here's the hope. Here's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though Paul has mentioned these ten, and of course he's, he's probably thinking of others. He ends right in verse 11. Listen to these words. Such were some of you. That you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. See, there is hope. This is, this is the answer. This is God's profound answer to our sin problem. This is the provision for conversion. All sin can be forgiven. 
So you haven't gone too far. We have a Savior that will, that will step into the middle of your train wreck of a life. He will step into the miry clay. He will go to the gutter and grab that soul who repents of their sin. That's the love of God. Here's the kindness. Romans 2, 4. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, uh, or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? So here's, the, here's God's answer, right? Cross and conversion, salvation. There's not a certain standard for the Corinthians. He doesn't say, hey, you guys need to do this and that. What is the answer to all of these sins is Jesus. Paul has led them, right? This is my, my profession. This is what I came to you and, and preached to you is that it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the answer. And we're not going to let some law or some bill or some culture tell us, you know what, don't, don't preach that anymore. I feel like the cannibal, if you don't preach this, they're going to end up in a pot, right? If we don't preach this, they're going to end up in an eternity of God's wrath. See, Paul is telling them, some of you were this. They are ex-fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and effeminate. They were ex-this. Some of you were this, and such were some of us. You realize that when we take conversion off the table, regardless, even if this morning you say, I'm not struggling with those sins, you realize if, that, that if pastors won't open the Bible and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no hope for you either. See, some of us are ex-fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, effeminate, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That's us. We have uh, loved ourselves. We were born into sin. This is what has marked us. And some of us, like that little girl, were running as fast as we could to hell. But Jesus said, I will enter into your mess, into your miry clay, and I will redeem your soul. And I don't know if, if that's your testimony. That is surely mine. He knows us by our names. He's willing to get dirty. All those who humble themselves just like David. A broken and contrite spirit. So how does God do this? How does he redeem me and you? Regardless of our sin, well, the answer, of course, is conversion. Paul says, such were some of you, but contrast. You were washed, but contrast. You were sanctified, but contrast. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of our God. You were once this. We love that song, Amazing Grace, don't we? I once was blind, but now I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified in Jesus. I see the old has gone. The new has come. The new demands a new lifestyle. There is change the cannibal doesn't eat. The anthropologist, right? He has changed. We live in a new life. The church is not full of perfect people. We're people helping one another to glorify Christ in our lives, to pick up a cross and follow him. And as we do that, we desire that others would come to know this peace. Christ has said to you, he has said to me and all those who have believed on him, I'll take your shame. I'll take your sin, I'll take your brokenness, I'll take your pain, I'll take all your regret, I'll take all your guilt, I'll take all the things that you don't even want to mention, all the things in your life that you don't even want to think about, every single sin, and I will make you clean. It doesn't mean we won't struggle, 
We're going to struggle against some of those sins. And we're full of his spirit. But see, this is the power of Christ. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what nation you live in. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your financial standard. It doesn't matter. Every single one of us, every single one of us needs Jesus. Every single one of us needs conversion. Every single one of us needs to be washed, sanctified, justified. In John 3, 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? Conversion. You must be born again. You must be washed. It means regeneration. The power of the Holy Spirit. You must be sanctified. Set apart for holy works. Cleansed completely. You must be justified like in a court of law. You have right standing before God. And it's found in Christ alone. You're no longer guilty. You've been redeemed. You are innocent. You have a new life and a new standing before God. Once we lived to sin in this world, we were dead to God, but now he has made us alive. Once we were running to hell as fast as we could, but he grabbed us, turned us around. He converted us. How does he do this? Notice the Trinity. The name of our Lord Jesus, because he has come, because he had lived this life, a sinless life, under the law, because he went to the cross and he rose again. We do it by the Spirit who fills us and regenerates us and empowers us every day. And of course, of our God, who so loved you, right? We see all three. Is conversion important to God? Yes. Why would any church this morning not preach his message? Why would we not love? Do you realize if we don't, then that, that statement, such were some of us, goes away. When it's not preached, when the gospel is not shared, there's no more such for some of us. There was a little girl who was given up for adoption when she was very young. And she was dropped off at a, a place, in an orphanage. And when they took her in, they didn't know her parents or her mom. And they, they liked and loved this little girl. They, they nicknamed her Mary Lost. Because they didn't know. They had no idea. Well, she grew, and of course the orphanage taught about Jesus, and she came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So overwhelmed. There's one who would not give up on her when her own parents gave up. She loved the Lord to the point where she said, please don't call me Mary Lost anymore. Call me Mary found. This is, this is what is at stake. When we cave to any one sin, when we say, well, there are certain sins we'll deal with, we won't touch those. We are making God to be a liar. We are telling those who are lost in those sins, yeah, Jesus isn't for you. Well, right here we see it. He is for every soul who will repent of their sins and believe on him. Here in a moment, we're going to close by singing a simple chorus. 
called Give Me Jesus. And in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to the end of my days, give me Jesus. I pray this, this morning that the preciousness of Christ, what Jesus says about salvation, would resonate in you, that you would sanctify the Lord Jesus and say this is his truth. It may put some of you, and I know, in a difficult situation, but do not yield praying. Stay the course. It is God's answer to all our sin problem. God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, let us stand in that ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. The truth of your word that challenges us today. And God, I know that some of us this morning, this, this, hit, this hit home. And for many of us, it reminds us of, of the sin, Lord, that you have dealt with. It reminds us of our testimony. And it may for us, Lord, be just, just a Sunday where we go, yes, yes, and amen. But, Lord, we pray for our brothers in Canada and our sisters in Canada. We pray for your church in Canada who are now facing persecution this way. Yes, Lord, for boldness, confidence in the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray for conversions. God, you are mighty. When your word is preached, it does not come back void. So we pray for conversions. We pray, Lord, that those who are lost in sin would come to know hope and healing. They would come to know the dignity that only you can bestow upon them. So, Lord, we pray. We pray for those this morning who are struggling in this sin, and even uh, maybe family members or loved ones this morning that we know who are struggling in this sin. Lord, we pray for them. We lift them to you. I pray that you would give us Paul's confidence to know that they are not beyond your grace. They are not beyond your mercy. They are not beyond, beyond your Lord, that you would lead them to a place to repent, Lord, to believe, to confess, to be converted. We pray for that. I pray, Lord, for the pastors in America today, those 3,000 plus who are standing for, for the truth of your word. And what's at stake? Lord, continue to lead and stir them, stir those churches, Lord, towards grace and mercy, full of love. Lord, love for those, not just those lost in this uh, lifestyle. We're lost in sin regardless of what it is. All our sin separates us from you. All our sin is against you. Not some sins, all of it. So Lord, we pray for Christ to be Lord, be Savior of all of it. Lead us that way. And Lord, I pray for every soul here this morning that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Lord, I know it's difficult. We live in a world that is not uh, friendly to Christianity anymore. Lord, let us not quiver or doubt, but lead us. Let us realize that you have called our names, you have redeemed us, you have saved us. You love us. So Lord, let us love you. Let us love you with our lives and our choices. That you be glorified in us. And we thank you. Father, I pray that as we close with this song, you would stir our hearts to sing simply, Lord, I don't want the world to give me Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.